if security concerns are significantly urgent, economics takes a backseat. And, and I think it's clear that security concerns right now are that level of urgency, or at least are, are, are perceived as being of that level of urgency. So I think the U.S. and Europe will continue to find ways to resolve their economic disputes. Hello, and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, the entirely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. I am Leo Kamer, and I am joined by my co-host, Max Redinger. Many countries have expressed concern over a number of subsidies passed by the Biden administration, mainly targeting green energy. In this episode, we explore why some European countries view American subsidies as a provocation, why they are pursuing competing subsidies, and how this may affect the relationship between the United States and its European allies. To discuss the U.S.-Europe trade dispute, Edward Alden joins us today. Edward Alden is the Ross Distinguished Visiting Professor at Western Washington University and the Bernard L. Schwartz Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, specializing in U.S. economic competitiveness, trade, and immigration policy. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Ted, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. It's great to be with you, Leo. Thanks very much. Last year, the United States passed laws including the Inflation Reduction Act, which incentivized moving green energy manufacturing to the United States. To get us started, why is the U.S. government passing these laws? Well, I think there are, I think there are two big reasons. I think the the, the biggest one is that it, that it represents a serious effort by the Biden administration to tackle the threat of climate change, which is a global threat that we're all becoming far more aware of because of some of the various weather anomalies. So this is the most serious U.S. government commitment to trying to move more rapidly to green technologies that, that we have seen. I think a second reason, um, maybe not quite an equal priority, but pretty close, is that the administration wants to revive manufacturing jobs in the United States. I mean, Biden's political theory of the case is that part of the reason Donald Trump won in 2016 is that he did very well in swing states that had suffered a lot of manufacturing job loss. And that by bringing manufacturing jobs back to those states in particular, um, and a lot of those uh, his administration believes are going to be these green uh, energy jobs of one sort or another. That will be good for the party uh, politically and and Biden believes good for the country because he thinks manufacturing uh, is is a central part of the economic success of any nation. So it's sort of a dual uh, goal, really. But these laws don't just affect the United States. Um, and some European countries have expressed criticisms about certain subsidies included in the laws. Yet the Criticized provisions of the IRA are meant to tackle climate change, an issue both the U.S. and EU consider important. Why are European officials upset about these measures? Well, I mean, I think the heart of the European concerns is the sense of discrimination. And that means something quite specific in the economic and trade context. I mean, the U.S. and Europe together were the leaders in building the modern global trading system, whose pillar is the World Trade Organization. And the basic principle of the World Trade Organization is non-discrimination. You don't use 
tariffs or subsidies or other taxes or regulations to favor your own companies over foreign companies. And the IRA, and this is part of the revive manufacturing in the United States, build it in America pillar of Biden's strategy, the IRA very clearly is discriminatory in favor of U.S. companies and against European, Japanese, other non-U.S. companies. So while the Europeans certainly support the United States doing far more on climate change, the Europeans are well ahead of, of where we are in terms of meeting their Paris climate targets. They're very upset about the discriminatory aspects. They think this will harm European companies, will harm European manufacturing, will make it difficult for the EU to maintain a leadership position on green technology. So they see it as being economically harmful to European interests. And which provisions specifically are seen as, as harmful to, to European economic interests? I mean, the you know, most of the controversy has surrounded the tax credits for electric vehicles. So there will be up to 7,500 and in various configurations more than that tax credits for American buyers of electric vehicles, provided those vehicles are made in the United States and uh, the source materials, particularly for the batteries, come from the United States and uh, free trade partners, which is an undefined term in the legislation, but clearly includes, for example, Canada and Mexico that are part of the NAFTA, now the, the USMCA. So, so that, that is a, a big preferential subsidy for North American production. There are other provisions in the legislation that, that essentially subsidize the operating expenses of, of battery manufacturers and, and other um, companies. So, so provides a lot of incentive. And we've seen some European companies already announce that they're going to set up new operations in North America. Provides a real incentive for European and other companies to the extent that they're thinking, should we expand in Europe? Should we expand in the United States? It, um, it definitely puts a, a, a pretty large finger on the scale in terms of, of investing and expanding in the United States rather than in Europe. And that, for understandable reasons, concerns uh, European leaders. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And which European countries or officials from which countries have been the most vocal critics of these uh, American subsidy measures? I mean, I think, you know, I, I would say the Europeans have been reasonably united. A lot of the, the high-level complaints have come out of the European uh, Commission and the European Commission presidency. I, I think of the countries, the French have been the most outspoken on this. Emmanuel Macron, the French president, visited Washington for a state dinner back in uh, December and spoke quite vociferously on this issue, how damaging the IRA potentially was to... Uh, to European interests, um, but I, I think there's a there's a pretty united front. Um, again, there's sympathy in Europe for the climate change goals here, um, and so that tempers the criticisms to some extent. I mean, Europeans have been hammering on at the United States for a long time for not doing enough uh, on uh, the carbon reduction front. The Europeans have a a carbon emissions trading scheme, for example. The Canadians have a carbon tax. Uh, we haven't done any of those things in the United States. So this is the first really serious effort by the United States. So the Europeans 
are giving the nod to that saying, you know, well done, uh, U.S. for taking your, your Paris commitments uh, seriously, but, but at the same time being very concerned about uh, the economic, potential economic consequences for, uh, for Europe. Now, on a bit of a gear change, I saw that yeah. in March, the European Commission announced new rules which would allow the EU member state governments to offer subsidies equal to what the companies could get abroad. Are these rule changes a response to the IRA? And how else is the EU responding? Yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're directly a response to the IRA and are, are extremely challenging for Europe. If you go back to the non-discrimination principle, the Europeans have really championed this both internationally and domestically. And the Europeans have one of the most restrictive regimes in the world on what they call state aids, which are government uh, industrial subsidies uh, to uh, manufacturers. And, and most of those subsidies with rather narrow exceptions, are prohibited within Europe. And the reason for that is that because you have a single market, there's a lot of concern over a wealthier country, say Germany, using its financial resources in the forms of tax rebates or other subsidies to try to attract manufacturing from the rest of Europe. So the smaller countries say, look, there's no way we can compete with the Germans in a subsidy race. And so the Europeans have historically dealt with this by basically saying, you know, you can't uh, offer generous subsidies within uh, the European Union. Uh, the IRA has forced a rethinking of that. I mean, if the, if the Europeans maintain their traditional religion with respect to subsidies, then a lot of companies are likely to be lured away by the, the, the promises that the United States uh, has made. So the Europeans are saying, look, we need to, we need to modify those rules. They're trying to figure out What's the right balance to try to, to deal with the historic problem of, of you know, German or French domination over the smaller uh, countries, but at the same time allow uh, heavier subsidies to respond where needed? Now, to be fair, the Europeans have done a lot of their own sort of broad subsidizing of the development of clean energy, not, not targeted in quite the way the American measures are, uh, more sort of infrastructure based measures to try to roll out green energy. So, so the Europeans have spent a lot on this already. Um, so it's not like they have entirely clean hands on the subject. Um, the other topic which we probably want to talk about is they've demanded negotiations with the United States to try to reduce the discriminatory elements of the IRA. Right. And maybe you can talk a little more about uh, those negotiations and you know where do they stand in terms of uh, how effective they may be in bringing to an end this sort of dispute that has arisen? Well, it's kind of fascinating. Those of us who have watched trade for a long time, I mean, I was, you know, present when the World Trade Organization was created back in Geneva in, in, uh, in 1993. So I've been watching this stuff for a long time. Um, the IRA has this language that says, you know, production uh, in order to receive the tax credits uh, production and sourcing of, of, of critical minerals in particular must be based in the United States or in free trade agreement partners. Well, in WTO speak, free trade agreement actually means something. It means an agreement that 
eliminates substantially all trade barriers among the countries involved. So the European Union, common market, that's a free trade agreement in Europe. The NAFTA slash USMCA, that's basically eliminated all trade barriers in North America. That's a free trade agreement. Um, but the, the Congress didn't define the term um, when they passed the bill. And the Treasury Department is now in the process of writing the implementing regulations for the bill. And they're coming out imminently. And folks in the Biden administration have been looking for a solution here. They, they don't want the Europeans to be um, angry over this. They don't particularly want the Europeans to be excluded. Remember, we're, you know, we're in the context of, of a military struggle in Ukraine and a growing geopolitical struggle with China in which the Europeans are critical partners. So when President Macron came in December, Biden essentially said to him, look, we'll fix this. And the fix that the U.S. and Europe are working on is to negotiate a narrow, um, and I'm, I'm making air quotes here, free trade agreement that essentially involves the critical minerals component of the IRA that says, uh, you know, trade between the United States and Europe in minerals necessary for battery production and other elements of electric vehicle production will, you know, all tariffs and other restraints will be removed. Uh, voila, that's a free trade agreement. And therefore, the Europeans are going to qualify under the rules of the IRA in the same way that the Canadians qualify or the Mexicans qualify. Um, Biden administration is doing the same sort of deal with, with Japan. So they basically just uh, decided that the traditional interpretation of a free trade agreement no longer uh, holds, that they can make up whatever sort of free trade agreements they want to make up. And, and the other element of this is that a traditional free trade agreement has to get approved by Congress. And there are folks in Congress who are saying, whoa, hold on, you're going out and you're negotiating a free trade agreement, you're cutting Congress out of this? We're not happy about that. So, so there's a lot of uh, making it up on the fly going on here. You know, we have these negotiations, but what we also have now is – or what we could have is one set of subsidies versus another. And you know, Europe is very reluctant to give up on its, uh, its values of, of free trade. And so I'm wondering what are the economic ramifications of competing subsidy programs? I mean I, I, just, I guess I just think that that – ship has sailed that you know there were efforts through the WTO for many years to try to constrain government subsidies there are rules in the WTO that are supposed to constrain government subsidies because of the belief that that this was bad it violated non-discrimination and it created a kind of you know race to the bottom with countries offering tax breaks and other subsidies to try to attract manufacturing. But, you know, for a variety of reasons, those provisions were very ineffective. The Chinese in particular uh, violated, they would argue they didn't, um, but I think if you certainly look at the spirit of the subsidies rules, the Chinese violated the spirit of the subsidy rules. Uh, you know, Chinese uh, industrial policy uh, is involved, you know, billions and billions of dollars more than what we've seen in the United States or what we've seen in Europe. Part of why China uh, is the global leader 
in many of these uh, clean energy technologies. And so I think both um, the United States and Europe have essentially said, look, if you can't beat them, join them. And so we are going to open the spigots uh, for subsidies as well. And, there, you know, there's going to be a lot of wasted money. Um, you know, one of the things that's going to contribute to inflation being a problem in all likelihood for for many years to come because governments are going to be throwing money uh, at these problems. But the argument in favor would be this is a planetary crisis. We need to move off carbon-based fuels as a civilization as rapidly as we possibly can. And if a bunch of money gets wasted and there's some trade frictions, uh, so be it. That's a, that's a reasonable cost. And I, I think that's pretty much where the consensus is now in both the U.S. and uh, and in Europe. The uh, the term deglobalization has been th- uh, sort of thrown about recently, um, describing a, a supposed decrease in uh, offshore production in these developed countries. We discussed a facet of this phenomenon in our episode on friendshoring with Elizabeth Braw last year. Are we in the midst of deglobalization? And if so, is this trade dispute an example of said global trend? Yeah, I think, you know, as with so many of these things, it depends on what one means by deglobalization, right? I mean, if if we if we take what by both sort of the numbers and the sort of rules that were negotiated was really peak globalization, which was the period sort of from the early 1990s up to the financial crisis. So a couple of decades in which you really did have something approaching global free trade with only, you know, a handful of countries, the North Korea's and others excluded from it. There's no question we've moved away from that. I mean, global trade growth has slowed substantially since the the great financial crisis of 08. 09. And, you know, we're seeing considerable relocation of certain kinds of, of industries, anything with a sort of strategic dimension, you know, like telecoms or critical minerals or, you know, semiconductor production or other things. We're seeing those move away from China to other locations. So, so deglobalization of that sort we have seen. What we have not seen is actually a profound slowing of global trade. Global trade actually grew reasonably strongly in 2022. I think we're seeing um, my colleague at the Council on Foreign Relations, Shannon O'Neill, has an excellent new book out on this, um, is, is really more regionalization. So lots of trade continuing to take place, but less of it um, you know, between Asia and the United States, between Europe and the United States, more on a regional uh, basis. And I do think the IRA will accelerate that. I mean, one, you know, one provision that, that is simply not going to get changed is that half of the tax credit is tied to the vehicles being made in North America. And, you know, most vehicle supply chains are already relatively regional. Uh, generally, you know, companies make cars in Europe for European markets and North America for North America and in Asia for Asian markets. But but the bill is really going to reinforce that. And so I, I think the, the, the trend to watch is not so much deglobalization as in, um, you know, really um, countries coming back home, but but regionalization. Um, 
Hey, I'm quite addressed. I'm going to take one more minute here on the friend shoring piece. Again, the, the complication of that is what do you do with respect to close partners that are outside uh, your region? And the United States hasn't really figured out what to do about that. You know, the U.S. walked away from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which would have been this big trade deal that, that would uh, likely have accelerated U.S. trade with Asian countries other than China. Biden administration doesn't want to go back into that. It has this new framework. It calls the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, but it's basically a nothing burger in terms of, of commerce. So that's left um, you know, U.S. trading partners in, in both Europe and, and Asia, because there's no big trade initiative with respect to Europe either, feeling a little on the, on the outside, like, like the U.S. is building a bit of a fortress North America here um, when it comes to manufacturing in particular. Mm -hmm. And on the discussion of some of America's allies feeling left out of these new uh, economic measures, uh, with the war in Ukraine, the United States and its European allies have stressed being in lockstep, you know, combined sanctions regime, or not the same sanctions, but contemporary sanctions. However, trade disputes may evidence strained relations between Europe and the U.S. What have been the diplomatic effects so far of America's recent protectionist measures? I mean, so far, I would say they've been, they've been very modest. I mean, the cooperation between the United States and Europe on the Ukrainian response has been extraordinary. Um, the cooperation between the U.S. and a broader range of, of allies, um, you know, including Japan and South Korea and, and Canada and others with respect to sanctions against uh, China on, on technologies of concern. Also really quite astonishing. I mean, there, there's been the most severe restrictions we've ever seen on the sale of advanced semiconductors in particular to China. And these other countries have largely got on board uh, with the United States, despite some real, real economic cost in terms of of lost markets in in China, that, you know the question is: Is this sustainable? I mean, it, 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 there's every reason to think the war in Ukraine is going to go on for a long time. I think if there's a break, I think it's more likely to come from the U.S. side. You know, we're in a sort of perpetual election cycle here, and 2024 is not that far down the road. And both of the leading Republican candidates, former President Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis are have spoken out quite publicly, saying they're skeptical of the U.S. Uh, support for Ukraine. Really think that the U.S. should focus on problems at home, including the southern border. Um, both are far more protectionist economically than the Biden administration. Both are sort of reflexively anti-European, and so I think I think you know as the election approaches and the rhetoric on this stuff heats up, I think there the, the possibilities of a deeper rupture uh, grow. I, th I think for now, um, the Europeans and the Biden administration are handling this pretty well. I think they'll, they'll get this air quotes free trade agreement that will, that will solve the immediate problem. It's it, the reporting uh, just in the last week has suggested the deal is basically done. So I think in the short term, things are looking pretty positive, but, but in the, in the medium run, I'm, I'm less sanguine. So if we 
do not see a resolution to this sort of merging trade dispute between the uh, US and the EU. Do you predict a broader trans uh, transatlantic uh, diplomatic rift? You know, I really, I really don't. And the reason is the stakes are just too high, right? I mean, we're we're moving. I don't, you know, call whatever you want to call it, but we're moving into something like a new Cold War with China. Uh, we're in the midst of a hot war with Russia. And, and alliances, military security alliances, have an importance that they've not had since, since I would argue, the height of the Cold War, right? They're, they're, you know, have a sort of importance that they had in the 1950s and 1960s, not even the, the 70s and 80s when the Cold War was beginning to wane. And if security concerns are significantly urgent, economics takes a backseat. And, and I think it's clear that security concerns right now are that level of urgency, or at least are, are, are perceived as being of that level of urgency. So I think the U.S. and Europe will continue to find ways to resolve their economic disputes and not let it interfere with this broader effort at security cooperation. The, the part that worries me, uh, you know, getting back to my previous comment, is you've got in the Republican Party now real isolationists of the sort that we have not seen in the United States since before the Second World War. I mean, political leaders who really think that it's not especially in America's interest to have a close diplomatic alliance with Europe. And, um, you know, if one of those people gets elected in 2024, then I think even, even in the face of these kind of security threats, you could begin to see that sort of rupture. And then the economic issues will become more volatile as well because the Europeans will say, well, look, if you know if the US doesn't have our back uh, militarily, then 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 you know, why should we accept uh, economic disadvantages of any sort? And yeah, actually just following up on that, um, what should the what do you think the next step for the for Europe uh, and for the US should be in order to uh, ultimately, you know, improve, as you said, there's a, you know, with the emerging sort of uh, tensions, improve their sort of security cooperations and best and best sort of uh, best uh, improve their relationships. Yeah, I mean, the, the security cooperation, to be fair, is kind of beyond my pay grade, right? I don't, you know, I don't focus on NATO or, or security uh, cooperation. I pay attention to it to the extent that economics is heavily influenced by the broader uh, security environment, but but I think I think on the economic side, I think clearly um, the two governments need to reinforce the sort of bilateral discussions they've been having. There's a new um, negotiating uh, form uh, that I think has been used quite successfully. I would argue uh, for a broader trade agreement between the United States and Europe. I don't think the Biden administration will go down that road. It's historically been controversial in Europe as well, but I think there is an argument for deepening economic relations and trying to trying to counteract a bit of the regionalism. Trying to say, look, it's it's in both the U.S. and European interests to you know increase their level of uh, economic cooperation with each other, and a deeper free trade agreement would be a positive way to do that. I, I you know, with respect to Asia, I uh, very much think the United States should go back into the the um, 
the CPTPP now, as it's called, the the Trans-Pacific Partnership that uh, President Trump walked away from at the at the beginning of his term in office. Again, not something the Biden administration seems inclined to do, though I think both could potentially become possible in a, in a Biden second term. So, so I, I, I would say, you know, Europe, the U.S. and also U.S. Asia should be looking for ways to deepen uh, their economic cooperation to try to uh, fight against some of the, the trends towards decoupling and regionalization. Well, Ted, thank you so much for joining us for this very informative episode on EU and U.S. trade. Thank you, Leo. Thanks, Max. It's been great to be with both of you. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.